Welcome to AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get support and guidance through the chaos of parenting. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I'm going to talk about an issue that is unfortunately near and dear to my heart. I kind of feel like I say that a lot. I don't know what that says about my house, but picky eating and extreme picky eating have been an ongoing issue an ongoing struggle over here at the Daniels house. And I know that many of you are in the exact same boat because I have seen your posts in our private Facebook group. Some of you have reached out and talked to me about it in the community. And I know that a lot of us are struggling with extreme picky eating. And there is nothing worse than having what almost feels like, and can be at times a life-threatening condition where your child is literally starving themselves to death and having sometimes well-intentioned, sometimes not well-intentioned people tell you, oh, you know, my kid was like that too. And you know, they just get over it. It's just a phase or yeah, a lot of kids are picky or, well, I've never heard of a kid starving to death. So don't worry about that. I love that one, especially, or you're not being firm enough. You know, you just need to, you need to put your foot down and you need to be firmer or, well, just don't let them eat anything else other than what you serve them. And that's what I do. (laughs) You're like, yeah, but you don't have my kid and you don't have my kid's problems. So thank you, but no, thank you. I have had many doctors, many well-intentioned people in my world give me advice that was horrific. And even I would say people who blog and write things about picky eating kind of frustrate me because I've stopped reading those things because I know they're not speaking to me because my kids, all three of them have different reasons why they're picky eaters. So my oldest has sensory processing disorder And even though she's almost 16 now, when she was a baby, she almost didn't really survive. She was failure to thrive. She had the diagnosis failure to thrive, which in my world as an infant and toddler mental health specialist, when I was very young was almost like it was a disorder that normally happens to kids who are neglected. So to get the failure to thrive diagnosis was shocking and she was falling like she was off the growth curve and she was, she was like inverted. And so she just kept losing weight and she could not eat. We had a feeding therapist, you know, we had OT and it took a very long time to get her up to snuff to improve. And then my second child had more of an OCD issue and he had issues that had nothing to do with any kind of sensory issue. He ate really well as a toddler and he ate really well as a a young child. And it wasn't until he developed pans, which is like pandas, uh, which is part of pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders, which I'm not going to get into today. But um, one of the biggest symptoms of pandas or pans is restrictive eating. So he is diagnosed with ARFID, which is kind of a fancy diagnosis that's a catch-all for way too many things in my humble opinion. And so he wasn't eating for a completely different reason because of intrusive thoughts around food. And then my littlest one is super picky because she was diagnosed with celiac and 
she's afraid to eat because a lot of times when she eats in the past, she has a history of her stomach hurting. And so there's kind of like a fear-based association with food because of that. So all three of them have struggles with food. My oldest doesn't anymore. And actually my son is doing really well right now, but the reason why they're having a struggles vary greatly. And if somebody just gave me kind of a pat on the back and said, don't worry about it. You know, everybody's picky at some time, or I was like that as a kid, I only ate chicken nuggets and pizza. They don't get it. So my guest today I invited her on because she does get it. She understands the difference between picky eating and extreme picky eating. And she doesn't give you that, that annoying advice of just hide the vegetables, you know, in a smoothie or hide the vegetables in the tomato sauce and, and leave it at that because that's not my problem. Like I am not worried about my child eating vegetables. I'm worried about my child eating. (laughs) So when my child eats, especially during a flare, I'm thrilled because he's actually going to live (laughs) a little bit different than I just want them to have a well-balanced meal. That's not what extreme picky eater issues are around. I mean, that's part of it for a lot of people, but it goes deeper and the origins of the problem go deeper. So I have invited Alicia Grogan to my show and she is the creator of your kids table. Maybe you've heard of her before. She is pretty well-known OT in the online world. She creates online classes and she's a licensed pediatric occupational therapist. She has 14 years of experience and she's a mom to three boys. And so she is similar to me, except in more of the OT and eating world. We both have similar missions to take our knowledge as therapists and spread them across the world instead of our town to help more and more people and to make help accessible. So she is awesome. And she is going to talk about the difference between picky eating and extreme picky eating, because I think that people get that confused. There's a little fuzziness around that. People don't know what is considered normal or abnormal, especially if it's their first child or it's their first kid with an eating issue. So we go all into that. It's a really good conversation and she brings up some really good points. She will also talk at the end about a free workshop series that she's doing right now, which is pretty cool. And it just opened today. So in her workshop series, she goes over the two-step process to successfully parent kids who are from the ages of one to 10, even the really extreme picky eaters. She talks about the four hidden factors that could be a major part of your child's picky eating and something that you may not even know. And then she talks about the key ingredient that most parents are missing, but is super necessary to move your child from a picky eater to a healthy child. So I'm going to watch this because I have um, dived into her resources a long time ago and it has been a while and I've had some new things pop up. So I'm going to go and watch her workshop series. It is running starting today for just a few days. And if you want to enroll, you can go. I'll save all the people driving in cars and doing dishes. Uh, You can text me at 44222 and just text the word picky eater. And I will text you the link to her free workshop. So let's get started and talk to Alicia. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. I am so happy to be here, Natasha. This is a good topic for so many people that uh, listen to this podcast and for myself as well, because picky eating is just a huge component of a lot of 
what goes on with the kids that I work with, you know, with sensory issues, anxiety issues, picky eating seems to come with it as well. So I thought it'd be really good to sit back and talk to you about what is the difference between typical picky eating and when is it actually kind of a problem that parents should really be concerned about, or at least kind of roll up their sleeves and, and work on? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, we use this umbrella term for picky eating. And I think using that umbrella term kind of comes with a lot of consequences <laughs> for people that are really dealing with the bigger problem, which we can talk about that in a minute. But to answer your question, uh, for me, there's a distinction between what I would call the typical picky eater that most children go through that phase, uh, usually between the ages of like one to two years old and five years old. We see that they don't prefer vegetables. We see that they kind of like those childhood favorites, but those childhood favorite foods that they're eating, like chicken nuggets, pizza, and hot dogs, they are able to eat those anywhere and in any way. So um, if they're at a friend's house, they can have the pizza that their mom made or the pizza from a different pizza shop, or uh, they will eat chicken nuggets all different sorts of ways. They usually are willing to try some new things and they usually have more than 20 foods in their diet. So on the flip side of that, when we see picky eating becoming more of a problem that needs addressed, uh, children are usually eating less than 20 foods and sometimes as few as two or three foods in their diet. So it can, it can be that, that low. And we also see children have an, a uh, very extreme reaction to new and different foods. So they are uh, throwing tantrums when new or different foods are presented uh, in front of them instead of just a I don't like that, or I don't want to eat that, which is kind of the response a typical or average picky eater would have. A child that's facing more extreme picky eating is going to gag. They're going to maybe even throw up, uh, push that food away, resist coming to the table, have a lot of stress and anxiety around the food itself. Uh, and, And also these kiddos will starve themselves before eating a new food. So the that advice that kind of seems to float around to just let your kid get hungry enough and they'll eventually eat that lasagna or the broccoli that you really want to eat will not happen for these kids. They will literally make themselves sicker, uh, sometimes causing themselves to throw up stomach bile or get migraines or... Um, have horrible stomach pains before they would even consider eating that new food. And you're bringing up some really good points because I think a lot of us hear stuff like that, like kids won't starve to death and, you know, maybe you just need to be a little bit tougher on them. And I know even from my own perspective as a mom and not a therapist, my oldest daughter had sensory processing. Well, she has sensory processing disorder and it, it really manifested mostly with oral defensiveness and just her inability to eat at all. And I remember at like two, she couldn't eat anything. Like she was falling off the growth chart. She was failure to thrive. And the pediatrician who was very old school. I loved him, but he was very old school. Didn't really 
understand what was going on. And he just said, no child's going to starve to death. Just put a little Chinese food on her high chair. It's to be delicious. She'll eat it. <laughs> right. <laughs> not, and she continued to starve until I had to kind of figure out myself how to help her because I wasn't getting any advice, you know, through her pediatrician. Yeah. And I think that's what is so dangerous. So I, I had mentioned before that this umbrella term of picky eating is dangerous for those that are really facing what most feeding therapists, there's lots of different words for it, uh, call, I use the term extreme picky eating, others use problem feeders, some people use resistant eaters, but it, all of those terms sort of categorize these kids that are more extreme. But you know, in our language, we're all just using the same term, picky eaters. So we think the uh, when we're helping a friend or uh, the doctor is just giving out that advice that it applies to everyone, but it really does not apply to kids that have moved into this uh, extreme sort of place uh, because there's just so many deep emotional reactions to it. Often, as you said, sensory is a huge component for it for a lot of kids. So there's neurological stuff going on for reasons why they're choosing to eat certain foods and not eat others. Yeah. And I, and I think sometimes even with partners, we have uh, some, some disagreements. I think that can be something that also becomes an issue because it's, how do you, how do you handle that when you have a partner who's saying it's just because you're not pushing him hard enough or you're not, you're just not being tough enough. You know, we all eat this and this is what you make. We shouldn't, you know, make other foods for them. And so sometimes it causes even some distress in your relationships because you don't, you're not aligned. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hear this constantly uh, from my audience, from my students that, that this is an, a challenge that they're facing. And I think, again, some of that comes from, we look back to the way that we were raised and I think a lot of these issues weren't as prevalent. You know, you can make the same argument for sensory processing disorder and autism and those types of things like a few generations ago were not at the forefront the way they are now. And we don't need to go down that rabbit hole now about why that is. However, uh, we look back to the way that we were raised and we think that well, we turned out okay. Um, so I think that the, the key to getting on the same page is really starting to educate together because what I find is when the partner or spouse learns uh, what's really happening with our picky eaters, that there's a reason that they're, that they're acting this way, that there usually are deep underlying issues and that it can be improved and that also the solution is finding a balance not necessarily giving your child everything that they want to eat all the time. Um, there's a middle ground there. And it's, you know, the solution also isn't never giving them what they want to eat at any meal. Um, and I think when you can find a middle ground as parents, uh, you can agree to get on the same page. Or uh, what some of my students do is they, they kind of come and make an agreement together to give uh, a plan or a particular strategy a solid try for a trial amount of time. And they can agree and let's see what the results are after 
two, two months or three months or even a month's time. Like, let's see if we can just both be all in on this and see what the results are. And I think that that can have huge benefits because like you said, it can just cause so much stress. Uh, and there's already enough stress at mealtimes with what a child is not eating. Oh, completely. And I like that. I think sometimes it's good if you're not aligned, if you and your partner are not aligned, sometimes it's either, if you're not going to see eye to eye, sometimes it's good to just say, you do your thing, you know, research, come up with a plan and I'll back off for like two months and I'll let, this will be your show. And then we'll see how that goes. It's nice if you guys can just work on the plan together, but I have had parents where I've worked with where they're not aligned with sleep or they're not aligned with eating and there is some big issue going on and they disagree on how to approach it. And sometimes it is just good to like hand the baton to the other parent to say, okay, I'll stay out of this for a little while and this will be your show and we'll see how it goes. So that's another option. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, just to speak a little bit to, uh, I think sometimes we can get caught in the trap of thinking, well, what our parents did worked. (laughs) And I think that there's some truth in that. But at the same time, I think we also have to acknowledge that what the vast majority of our parents were doing um, for generations was a very kind of black and white approach. And we do have some consequences to those sort of traditional approaches as as a society with food. most of us were raised with some sort of reward system around food or a clean plate club or take a bite of this and you can have more of that. And we're really uh, ingraining in our kids to look to food as a reward and to also bypass the healthier foods, the foods that we really want them to be eating. We're uh, subtly teaching them that those are the lesser foods while we're putting up the desserts or the foods that they prefer, which most parents would argue are uh, falling into that junk food type category as the foods to really be desired. And that stuff continues with us throughout our adult lives. So that's also an important piece, I think. And it's, it's kind of a paradigm shift for a lot of us to start wrapping our head around. Um, but it's really important. And when we start to step back and look at it, it's pretty easy to see those parallels with us as adults now. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, that is, it's just part of kind of culturally or, or the family dynamic of how many of us do things. So, and I never really thought about that, just kind of the message that it's sending to our kids. So I wonder if we can go into kind of like some of the origins of what causes like intense picky eating. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, there's a, so many factors that attribute to picky eating, and there are often many layers to picky eating. So it's common for a child to have been eating well, and then suddenly not. It's also, I would say, probably equally as common, maybe 50-50 is what I see with my students. I think in my practice, and in what I see in my students is that it's a good half, half and half split of kids that had a really difficult time getting started with eating from day one and kids that seem to be eating well, 
And then suddenly everything just started to change. And in both cases, there's a lot of layers to that. So in the case of kids that were eating well and then not, the first layer to that picky eating often starts with that typical picky eating phase. And it can really get much bigger because as our kids become more selective, they're exposed to less. They kind of like shut themselves down and they protect themselves. And in comes a sensory component now because they are becoming uh, more defensive because they're just not being exposed to as much. At the same time, we see other kids uh, that have started as babies. I mean, even when they're just starting to eat table foods, sometimes even just pureed baby food for the first time, really struggling with foods because of underlying sensory issues. So I know you talk about sensory uh, in your show, but sensory as it relates to food is really about how our mind is perceiving the way foods feel, the way foods smell, the way they taste. It's this combination of lots of different sensory experiences that we all sort of take for granted. However, if we stop and think about it, sensory plays a huge role for all of us. We all have certain flavors that we crave and that we love, some that we don't like as we don't like as much and some that we can't even stand, even if we ourselves are not picky eaters. We all kind of have those preferences based on how our brain is wired. So um, sensory is one of the hugest components that I see affecting our kids uh, with, with eating. And sometimes we don't see sensory being affected in many other areas. I think you even said with your daughter, it was primarily showing up with her orally. Of course, that's not always the case. Sometimes uh, as my students learn that sensory is a bigger component, they start to see all of the different ways sensory has subtly been affecting their child in other areas of their life that was kind of flying under the radar uh, because so many parents don't know about sensory processing. So sensory is definitely a huge one. Uh, some others are medical reasons. Uh, there are definitely just tons of minor issues that can be going wrong with our children's digestion, with the mechanics of swallowing. Sometimes these things are incredibly rare. Sometimes they're super common things like reflux. And I mean, the, the number or percentage of children that now experience reflux, it just keeps increasing. And when our children have felt that discomfort and pain, for so long, they don't even know how to identify it. They don't know how to put a word to it because it's just how they've always felt. But intuitively, they are really reactive to new and different foods because they know it's going to cause them more discomfort or they're already in discomfort and don't want to put more into their body. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, they can recover from those issues, but the lasting impression of the pain remains. So for a lot of our kids that have undergone any kind of medical issues that we may or may not be aware of, I mean, sometimes we're very aware, well, my child had to be hospitalized for a surgery and they had a feeding tube for two weeks purely for medical reasons. But the trauma of that has left such an impression on them 
that they are extremely cautious of new or different foods hitting their mouth because it's so uncomfortable. And that's an interesting component. You know, the medical component is something that I guess I don't really think about. And so I want if you know your child didn't have a medical trauma, are there things that you should be ruling out with your pediatrician that are anatomical or would that be more of a, um, like a speech therapist or an OT? It could be both. Uh, the pediatrician is always the first stop because there can be some things like uh, a lip tie or a tongue tie. So like the, you know, the lip is attached too closely and it doesn't allow them to chew well, or the tongue is attached too closely and they cannot get a lot of tongue movement. We need our lips and our tongues a lot to actually chew and eat our food well. So some of those issues can be diagnosed by a doctor, but, and it's definitely the first thing that I, that I would ask a pediatrician. However, uh, you might really have to fight for it because as you said, when you went to your pediatrician, especially kind of old school thinking pediatricians may kind of brush that off a little bit. Uh, and I do think that if you've asked and they've looked to get further testing done can be invasive. Like you might be needing to see uh, a pediatric GI specialist and even be having an endoscopy done, which does require sedation. And that's, that's a pretty serious step that you need, uh, that you may or may not need to take. So to, to, to prelude that, I usually do like to rule out you know, other sorts of issues before we're kind of taking those more invasive ones. However, just having some more awareness of what your child is doing can really start to clue in. Sometimes we're really missing some of those subtle signs because we're just not looking for them. So when we step back uh, and watch, are they complaining about stomach pains ever? Are they... Um, seem like they wince or have a difficult time swallowing? Uh, do you ever notice like coughing or choking, like when they're trying to swallow? Or uh, even if they're not saying that they're in pain, do you see them looking like they're in pain? So if you're dealing with a child that doesn't have the language yet, like maybe they are too, and they there's just no way that they're going to be able to articulate that. Do you notice that they go lay down after they eat or at certain times during the day? Uh, again, sometimes we can have clues. And I do think parents, when we start to pay attention to that, there are some really strong intuition guides there, intuitive guides there that can really start to point us to, wait, there might be something medical going on. But in the, I will say that for me, that that's the smallest segment of kids that I see is that there's a medical component. So I'm always looking to sensory first and also possibly like some oral motor components, you know, just difficulty coordinating and chewing, all that sorts of stuff. Uh, chewing is a skill just like walking, you know, so our kids have to be able to figure that out. And sometimes that can play a role too. Not to mention that any or all of those things can be in the mix and be parts of different layers that are going on with the extreme picky eating situation. Picky eating can be so many things that it seems like, I think it depends on who you're talking to as far as what they'll see, because you have, you know, you've got the sensory component and, you know, so if you're talking to someone in that world, they're going to see it as possibly sensory, or you have the, just the anatomy of the mouth and the functioning of the mouth, you know, that if that's your specialty, 
And then you have the mental health world where they have actually just created, I don't know if you've heard the diagnosis ARFID. Oh, I've heard it. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure you have to see yeah. But I don't know how you feel about ARFID, but I feel like it's such a catch-all diagnosis of um, you know, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, whatever it stands for. Right. A lot of times parents in my world will just say, oh, my child has ARFID. Like that's kind of like, that's the answer. And to me, just as a mom with three kids who have had eating issues for three really big different reasons, you know, one had total sensor processing disorder and has reflux, you know, and so you could just tell the way she's eating. It was from birth and she could not, she did not know how to eat. Her, her motor skills were just completely messed up, you know, and even now she's, she probably wouldn't like me saying this, but she's almost 16. She, I really, I see her eating predominantly in the front, you know, and food. She has a hard time keeping food in her mouth. You know, like you could just still see some of those things that she's adapted to. um, But you could see where it's a physical struggle for her. And then my second child, we'll just go through my kids. You know, he, he has OCD. And so there is a pandas and pans component to, I think, kids who have eating issues where it could be under the umbrella of ARFID, but just randomly spitting food out because he thinks he's going to choke, but having no trauma, no physiological issue with Mm. his mouth, and just having an intrusive thought that says, what if I choke? And then it can get really weird, you know, like, is the food contaminated? Is the food watching me? You know, then we're dealing with pure like OCD stuff, but it presents as a food issue you know, where the right. food, the go-to foods are going away as quickly as they were there. And you have two go, go-to foods and your child's ready to be G-tubed, you know? And then the little third one, you know, she just has like an acute sense of smell and she has stomach aches. And so I thought she was just a picky eater and I thought she was just anxious. And I went, brought her to the doctor and she had celiac disease. Mm. And so there was a medical component to hers where now she's afraid to eat because it can, she's worried it will hurt her stomach. And so whenever she gets sick or has pain, she eliminates those foods. And so she's quickly reducing her foods to, you know, things that are not good and can't sustain her because she doesn't get sick on those. So I think it's just a rundown of, you know, and all of them could be considered, you know, having a diagnosis of ARFID, you know, so. Absolutely. And I, um, I, I have to admit, I take a little bit of a deep breath because I hear the diagnosis a lot and my my reaction is the same as yours. I feel like in a lot of cases, it's become uh, an answer for a lot of people. And my message is that there is help no matter what, like that's not the end of the road. Uh, You know, just recently I, I shared something on my Facebook page, you know, it was a a little image with a statistic that says 10 to 11% of kids will not eventually eat when they get hungry, kind of what we were talking about the early, uh, earlier in our discussion here. And it broke my heart to see the amount of comments that came in underneath of people saying, yes, my child is like, I'm so glad to see this, but uh, you know, we've just accepted that this is our way of life. And I think that there's obviously some good in that if you're not in that stressful state, because obviously when the, with these eating issues, with the extreme picky eating, there's often so much stress on everybody involved. So that's definitely progress if you're able to move past a place and say, okay, we have that diagnosis. We're just going to accept this and you're not in that stressful state. However, 
no matter what your child is dealing with, like past trauma, medical issues, sensory, there is so much hope and so much that can be done. I've worked with children that were on feeding tubes and only eating one to two foods and watched them move to a healthy, a healthy diet uh, where they were eating a variety of foods. That's to say that that's not going to be solved with one quick tip or trick. Um, and it's certainly a journey and a process that you go on. Uh, but it does concern me that that diagnosis is saying that that's the explanation and that there's there's nothing else that can be done because there's so much that can be done, even for our most extreme and complicated picky eaters. And I think a lot of people just don't know what to do because from what I've seen, they just go from, you know, okay, my child, just acceptance of, okay, I'm just going to feed you potato chips every day. Cause that's all you're going to eat. Like literally. Right. Uh, old fish. It's a big right. one in my house right. to, you know, how, how do I just like force them how to eat all this stuff? And so it's finding, it's, it's really understanding and, you know, having a plan and having someone teach you going step by step so that you feel guided because it's not intuitive. It's not something that is common sense. I think you really need the guidance of someone who knows how to navigate you through that. So yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that that's where, again, that, we run into trouble with that general picky eating term because a lot of those kind of intuitive strategies that we would use, like using dessert as a reward or feeding them, not feeding them until they're hungry. Those are the picky strategies that we're hearing and they are not effective for this group. So parents hear that they, they know in their gut most of the time that's not going to work for their kid, but they feel they have nothing left to try. So they try it it doesn't work and it just feels all the more hopeless because there you like you said you just don't know what to do and there isn't just one quick trip it, uh, trick it really is a plan whereas for an average or typical picky eater you can kind of pull out some tips and tricks and be like oh wow that really made a difference that recipe or or doing that one thing oh yeah they tried a couple of new foods with that that's not going to be the case for an extreme picky eater. And that's probably where parents get, get hopeless because, and I know because I really, I see this from a parental perspective, even more so than as a therapist, just because it's, you know, it's a, it's like an add, add on to the stuff I deal with in my practice, but it's not my, it's not my core thing I deal with, but parentally is something I deal with every single day. And, and I, I can see where it would get frustrating because even when you see people who say they're going to help you with picky eating, you know that they're just going to tell you to hide the vegetables in something or just mm. mix it with a sauce. And you're like, you don't get it. I can't eat my, my child isn't going to eat your sauce. That's not on her go-to list. So I think right. sometimes it's those common picky eating strategies that you feel like defeated because you feel like they, people just don't get it. And so I think it's having a plan. And also I think with ARFID, to get, just to circle back with that, just to close that up, um, I think ARFID's a good start, it's not the end. And so if you know, yes. it's, there's some validation to say, my child has a disorder because that's how I'm feeling about it. I'm feeling pretty overwhelmed. This is not normal. This is not developmentally appropriate. Thank you for giving me a disorder so I can feel validated that yes, this is clinically an issue. But then you don't stop with that. I, I feel like you still want to figure out, is it sensory based? Is it medical? 
Um, or in my world, is it anxiety, fear-based, the fear of choking, fear of throw up, you know, am I having intrusive thoughts around OCD? Do I have pandas or pans, which causes restrictive eating, um, normally related to some sort of intrusive thought? You know, those are my world type of issues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they all go under the umbrella of ARFID. And so you get the extra help, the sensory help, the medical help, the anxiety or OCD help. And then we all together, all of us, no matter what bucket you're in, still have a picky eater that we need to work with. So whether you're working on the OCD or the anxiety or the pandas or the pans or the sensory or the medical, now what do we do? We all have kids who equally all have a safe list of foods and we don't know where to go. And I think that's where you come in because that's where the whole, who doesn't matter where you are on that plate, we're all there together. And then how do we approach that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's my passion. And that's really, that's the message I want to share with the world uh, is that there is something that can be done, but you do need to be getting help from somebody that understands that this isn't just an average picky eating situation, that it's, that it's something, that it's something more. Um, so I'd love to invite your, your audience to my free workshop series. That's actually starting today. And in this workshop series, I'm going to teach my two-step process of what it actually looks like to move your child from picky eater to really being a healthy child. And I do, uh, I wish I could put quotes around that, that word healthy, because I think our definition of, of healthy means a lot of different things. Uh, and I'll tell you just to be really clear, what my definition of healthy is, is a child that is eating food at least some foods from all of their food groups. So my food groups are having some proteins, having some carbs, and having some fruits and vegetables in their diet so that they can come to the table and that it's not stressful and that parents feel like they have enough foods that they're able to rotate through and that their child is getting adequate nutrition and calories to grow. So uh, this workshop series is... Uh, brand new, and I've actually never taught all of this before. It's it's the heart of what I teach inside of my complete program, Mealtime Works, and it's really going to show parents that are in this picky eating, this extreme picky eating place, of what exactly those next steps are, so that you can begin to start getting real help. And uh, we will not be talking anything about hiding. Uh, hiding vegetables and the macaroni and cheese. <laughs> and sign me up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think I have taken your program a long, long, long time ago, you know, and it has been so long um, and it was so helpful at the time. So I need to refresh my memory and definitely take your free workshop and check out your program because I feel like whenever you talk about picky eating, I feel like you get it. And it's really rare for me to to listen to someone talk about picky eating and not be I'll just slowly get irritated and annoyed by what they're saying. And so I normally, I think almost as a coping mechanism, I shut my ears off to anyone talking about picky eating. And I'm sure a lot of people in my audience can relate to this. It makes me feel guilty. It's kind of like parentally, there's so much guilt around nutrition for your kids. I mean, even if you don't have a picky eater, there's the guilt of, am I being a good mom or a good dad by providing them nutrition? But then when you have a, an extreme picky eater, you there's some burden and guilt that you feel like you are responsible for starving your child or mm -hmm. your child's ability to be well-nourished. And you might even get some well-meaning relatives or pediatricians making comments that will kind of reconfirm that. 
And so it, you never make me feel that way. Whenever I hear you talking about it, I always feel like she gets it. She's, she's hearing and she understands that this struggle is, is an acute situation and it's not a parental issue. We just, as parents need to know what to do and what not to do to, to improve the situation and not, you know, in, in, inadvertently make it worse. Well, thank you for saying that because I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I had an extreme picky eater myself, uh, but had already been treating picky eating for many years by the time I was given the gift of experiencing it myself as a parent and really having that perspective. Uh, but it's, it's incredibly difficult for me to even hear other people's comments, uh, casual com- comments in grocery store lines or birthday parties. And um, it's so important for me to educate. And uh, anybody that knows me knows it is my soapbox. And if you bring it up around me, <laughs> you're going to hear that there's really so much more to it. Um, and it's not just as simple as feed your kid and they'll eventually get hungry. There's so much more to it. So I'm so glad that that is uh, the message that you're getting from me because it's, it's definitely how I feel. Yeah. And I think it's good for everyone to get that because I am messaged all the time by parents who are, who, who don't know where to start and they can't find local help on how to help their extreme picky eater. They can't find therapists that understand it. They get bad advice. And so the beauty of the online world is there's access to help in a virtual sort of way. And you can tap into experts like you without having to be finding someone locally. So I think that's awesome too. So how can people find your workshop and find your work in general? Well, you can find me at yourkidstable.com. I blog there every week uh, and there is tons. um, I think I'm over a hundred picky eating blog posts. Wow. So I don't, I, I might even be, I don't know. It could even be double that by now. I'm not even sure. But so there is uh, tons of information on uh, picky eating, tons of information on sensory processing. And I can give you a link, Natasha, to have them sign up for the workshop in your show notes. Yes. I will always include that. So that'll be in the show notes. It'll be in my YouTube notes. If you're watching this on YouTube, and it'll be on my website. So I'll have a link for the workshop and a link to your site as well. Awesome. That's so great. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. You are so welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. It was great to talk to you. So I hope you found our conversation helpful. I really enjoy talking to her. I always feel like validated and heard (laughs) when I talk to her because I've talked to many other professionals in the OT and feeding therapy world, and a lot of them don't get it. And is frustrating. So she's definitely in the category of she gets it and don't miss her free workshop. It's going to be a really good one and it's free and it's a good series that she's going to go into some meaty stuff that you can take away right away. So if you want the link to enroll in the workshop, you can just text me at 44222 and I will shoot you over the link to enroll. So I hope you're enjoying my podcast. I hope that you're finding that I'm bringing you some helpful information into your life. If you're appreciating it, you can show your gratitude in a simple way. You can just click a star on iTunes that helps other parents recognize that this show has some value. And if you have a few extra seconds, I always greatly appreciate people who take the time to write a little note, write a little comment or review, letting other parents know what they value about this show. 
And to show my gratitude for people doing that, I always like to end my show reading one of them. So I just want to say thank you to N2 Simmons, who wrote Helpful, and then they wrote Great Information for Navigating Life with a Child with OCD. So thank you for taking the time to leave a review. I'm glad you found it helpful. And if you find it helpful and you're leaving a review, maybe I'll be reading your review next time. So don't forget to find the sparkle in everything you do, and I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Hi, I'm a mom of a daughter with OCD. I live in South Africa. Um, and it's a country that doesn't have a lot of resources for children's mental health and specifically OCD. I really was at my wit's end on how I'm going to support my child, how I'm going to do ERP, how I'm just basically going to, to parent a daughter with OCD in a country that has little to no resources. And at times it got just debilitating for us as a family and I was super lonely, um, people weren't listening, I didn't have any support. The AT community has been an absolute lifesaver. Natasha has been instrumental in the past few months in helping us set up ERP challenges, going through them step by step, being supportive each and every step of the way. Joining the AT parenting community has been one of the best things I could have done for me and my family. Uh, Natasha has built this community and it is exceptional. I've learned so much. The support is fantastic. It's it's just been life-changing for my daughter. Um, it's so nice to be able to ask her live questions in office hours. She's there, she responds. Uh, her live videos every week where she asks us what we need her to talk about. Uh, also her forums, again, where you can ask questions. She's on there all the time. She is very present. The resources she's had provided, the worksheets. Uh, there are so many things in this AT parenting community that are beneficial. Natasha gives you so much of her time and her expertise. She's there to answer your questions, so it's such a personal way of getting help and support when it's much needed. Personally, the community has helped me because I feel like I needed my support. And then you have the added bonus of this fantastic community of parents who are going through such similar things and suddenly you're empowered and have ways of accessing help and making a real difference to your family. And also just the support of all the other moms and dads, it's really good, you know? We laugh together, we cry together, we fail together, we succeed together, um, and, and everybody gets it. Everybody gets it, and it's such a nice community to be with, and I hope you join us. You won't be disappointed. Try it out. To learn more about how you can become a member of the AT Parenting Community, go to atparentingcommunity.com.